The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Excellent Podcast. Today, we are speaking with Rachel Sumner and Stephen Kemp, colleagues with the Intergroup Dialogue Project at Cornell, otherwise known as IDP. We will talk with them about their journeys from student to lecturers. They will tell us what the project is all about and how it has helped influence communicating across differences for over a decade. My name is Erin Semper-Chase. My name is Toral Patel. And you are listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Stephen and Rachel, welcome to our podcast. We are so excited to have both of you with us today. As we get started, can you please introduce yourselves, the pronouns that you use, and then the roles that you have here at Cornell? Great. My name is Rachel Sumner. I'm the Associate Director with the Intergroup Dialogue Project, or IDP. Uh, so I have been at Cornell since 2010. I came here for graduate school, and then I did a postdoc, and I've been with IDP since 2018. Welcome. And Stephen, how about you? Hi, my name is Stephen Kim. I am currently the Curriculum Specialist at the Intergroup Dialogue Project and the Assistant Director with ILR Workplace Inclusion and Diversity Education. I got to Cornell as a graduate student in 2015, and I have been working full-time with IDP since 2020. Excellent. Well, again, we're so glad to have you both. We're going to get to IDP in a minute, but first, I want to back up, and I love that you both just happened to start here at Cornell as graduate students. So I would love to hear more about what your path has been, your academic and professional path. I mean, I know when I went to grad school, I couldn't wait to get out <laughs> and, like, leave that university. I mean, so <laughs> love to hear more about what your path has been that has led you to Cornell and led you to stay here. Sure. Um, I think when I imagined a career, there are a few things I did not imagine. One, mm -hmm. I didn't expect to end up in doing this kind of work, um, dialogue work and DEI work. I didn't actually expect to stay in college teaching, even though I did a doctorate here. Mm -hmm. And all of it, I think, was just a lot of serendipity. And when I think back to my younger self, if I were to tell him, oh, everything is serendipitous and you'll stumble upon opportunities that are meaningful and fulfilling to you, I would have hated myself a little bit, you know? I would just been like, no, like, I need to plan. Um, so the degree that I did was a doctorate in literatures and English here. And so I think I was expecting to go back to something more high school teaching. Mm -hmm. And then I stumbled upon, actually, I signed up late for the first iteration of the intergroup dialogue course for graduate and professional students. I remember... Um, in like a few weeks before it started, emailing the director of the program saying, hey, I was combing through some old emails and this looked really interesting. Are there <laughs> any spaces left? I know the deadline was like two months ago. And lucky for me, she said, we actually do have space. Can you mm -hmm. show up on the first day? Um, and mm -hmm. then I think the rest was history. Um, I participated in the program for the rest of my time in grad school and then um, worked there immediately upon graduation. And what I found so fulfilling about it was it was a space where I felt like I could push myself and undergraduate students to think more broadly about who they were, how they related to the world, and how we're moving through a world that I guess is enmeshed in history and narratives and power differences, mm -hmm. including a lot of, I think, structural and material inequity. We were pushing ourselves to think about all of that complexity and trying not to flatten anything or make it more simplistic than it actually is. Mm. And that for me was really, really hard. Um, it still is really, really hard. And I like that my job pushes me to continue doing that. Wow. Well, again, we're going to get back to that because <laughs> you said a lot there. But Rachel, what about you, about your path? Yeah, I studied developmental psychology here at Cornell, and my focus was purpose in life, so how people figure out who they are, what makes their life feel meaningful, the direction that they want to pursue for their life. And I was always interested in how things like social identities, um, so whether it's gender or race or socioeconomic status, nationality, things like that, 
how do these groups that we belong to shape our experience of cultivating a sense of purpose in life, whether because of expectations that we have for ourselves or those that are placed on us, opportunities that we have access to given the, the resources that we have, things like that. So that is what I studied in graduate school. And then I did leave for a year. Okay. Um, I went to work for a nonprofit. It was a, a horrible fit. So I came back <laughs> um, to do a postdoc in the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. I was always really interested in how do we take the things that are discovered or identified here in academic institutions and actually put them into practice in the real world. Mm. And so I was working with 4-H educators on how does purpose show up in their programs for youth and adolescents. And then I saw the email about the second offering of IDP's course for graduate students and postdocs. I applied on time. Okay, I see how this is. Okay, and it was revelatory. So I, it's a, it's an eighteen-hour program. So when I did it, it was six three-hour-long sessions. Brings together graduate students and postdocs from very different departments, and so that was different from mm-hmm. much of what I had experienced in graduate school, where I was mostly interacting with other people in my department. And I just loved the way that it asked all of us to think about our own lived experiences in connection with broader patterns, whether it's patterns that are identified through research, right, which was something I had a lot of experience with. So looking at data or studies as really important sources of information. We did some of that in IDP, but it was also how has this shown up in your own life, right? So bringing ourselves into that work. And I found that combination of individual and institutional lenses to kind of look at patterns, hierarchies, inequities. I found it so compelling. Um, And so I knew once I'd experienced that, that I didn't want to do just one or the other, right? I didn't want to just do research. I didn't want to just, I don't know, write memoirs or reflect on my own life. I wanted to, to do both and to do it with other people. So you know what? We've been talking about IDP and we kept saying we're going to get to it. We're yeah, going to get yeah. to it. So this is this is the time. Let's get to it. So um, can you talk a little bit more about the Intergroup Dialogue Project, maybe some of the historical context, how and why it was started, and, and even the goal of the program? Absolutely. So IDP came to Cornell in 2012, and our initial offering was a semester-long course for undergraduate students to give them the opportunity to practice intergroup dialogue. So coming together across differences in social identity and giving people a sustained opportunity over the course of about 13 weeks to get to know each other and get to know dialogue skills, practice them in the classroom with peer facilitators. So the other people sort of leading the class, it wasn't an instructor who's a a faculty or staff person, it's other undergraduate students. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's um, across all of our programming, this idea of co-learning or every person, whether you're there as a participant or as a facilitator, is showing up as a teacher and a learner. So there are things that each of us can offer to the conversation that will help shed light on the topic or, you know, add nuance or raise a question, right, that the group Mm -hmm. hadn't been considering. Anyone can do that. Um, And anyone can learn from each other. And so that practice of peer facilitation is still part of our work, although our trajectory, I guess, has, has evolved a lot in the last 11 years. We still want to empower people to engage in critical dialogue. So communicating with intentionality, with the goal of really understanding each other, and doing so in a way that acknowledges differences that we have, that doesn't pretend these differences don't exist or that they don't matter. And so talking explicitly about things like social identity or power and how these impact our relationships with each other, how they impact the way we move through the world, what we notice, what we don't. Um, So we want to give people the skills and capacities and knowledge to engage in critical dialogue, to connect with other people, to learn more about social identities, and honestly, to make change. We want people to feel equipped and knowledgeable enough to identify opportunities for them to make whatever it is, whatever sphere they're part of, more equitable. So if it's a club that I belong to, if it's conversations around my family's dinner table, if it's a class that I teach, um, there are opportunities to, to make things more equitable. One thing that Rachel said that I um, fully agree with and want to emphasize as well is when we're thinking about critical dialogue, it's these differences in social identities, these differences in power, um, and then also these structures and systems of inequity 
they both inform, I guess, the how of how we communicate and connect with one another. It's like, how do we speak to each other and learn from each other in a way that recognizes that all of these things are at play? But then it's also the what of the conversation. Like We want to push ourselves to be able to talk about social identity differences and structural inequities productively in a way that also recognizes that we all have different relationships to them when Mm -hmm. we're speaking to each other about it. Sometimes I get worried. These are so many things to keep in mind. Maybe I do want to steer away from the topics that are more challenging or difficult. Mm -hmm. And so critical dialogue really is a commitment both to keeping all these things in mind as we communicate with each other and also pushing ourselves to have the conversations about inequity and identity that can be challenging and to work with each other through any kinds of failures in conversation and empathy and understanding. So Stephen mentioned that we all have different relationships to these inequities because of groups we belong to or roles that we occupy. And so this is part of the reason that IDP has expanded our programming since we, we got here. We still have that course for undergraduate students on intergroup dialogue. We also now have academic courses for MBA students. We have some other courses for undergraduates that are focused on dialoguing across political differences or thinking about purpose in life. We also do work with academic advisors, faculty, and we have a required program for all incoming undergraduate students that is only a couple hours long, but the idea is to create some shared language across the entire campus So that even if someone has just a very brief interaction with us, they're in an environment where people are thinking about social identity or people are thinking about dialogue as a form of communication. So um, we've really broadened our scope since since 2012. That's very helpful background. Um, I got to say, you know, challenging topics elicit a lot of passion. You know, they elicit a lot of strong opinions on the part of people. So I guess I'd love to hear more about how are you creating an environment where that actual critical dialogue happens in a way that doesn't result in fistfighting? These conversations really benefit from some shared expectations. Um, And so in our work, we often introduce what we call community agreements at the very beginning of an experience. So whether it's a course or a session, and we say we want to be very candid and all on the same page about how we're going to engage with each other. So not only how am I going to engage when you're talking and I'm listening to you, but how am I going to also, when I'm the one speaking, how am I going to show up? So when someone says something I disagree with, not taking that person to task for being a bad person, but saying, hey, that's an idea that I have some issues with. Um, And if we've agreed to this at the outset, I feel more comfortable doing that, right? I don't sit here thinking, how's Aaron going to react if I say, oh, that's an idea that I have an issue with, right? We've already been upfront about the fact that this is a space where we're going to challenge the idea, not the person. So you may not be surprised, right, when when I challenge an idea. One thing that I do want to emphasize is that the course, it was living and learning across difference is what it was called. And it pretty much was like every week we picked a challenging topic and then we talked about it. It was about learning to connect with one another as we were having challenging conversations. And one of the sort of like underlying thing was to show all of us that like even disagreement can be an opportunity for connection. And what I found was that I don't know. It's like I tried to open a space where we could say, I don't know. Um, I feel like there's such a pressure to have an opinion about all these hot topics, as one colleague calls them. And then it was actually really lovely to get a bunch of students saying, like, I feel really pressured to have an opinion on this, but I don't know if I know enough to be able to pick a firm position. And it was fascinating to see, like, some students were really passionate about some topics. And then for others, they were like, I have no idea. I'm really just here to learn from, like, my peers. And that was really lovely. Um, And again, it's like what I took away from it was almost like a delightful sense of surprise. And there were some moments that were heated. I'm not going to lie. There were moments where like, whoa, this is interesting. Um, There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, But then it never like erupted into like chaos. It really was. It's like I think they were mindful that like, oh, we are here together to be able to talk about this together and to find points of connection with one another. I think what's also true is that the assumption that this is going to blow up is often a fair one mm-hmm. If when we're talking about controversial issues, in large part because many people don't 
have a lot of experience doing that in a way that's geared towards understanding and not winning, for example, Correct. or yes. proving that I am the most yes. smart person in the room. And so it's not just that students wanted to be in your class, Stephen. It's that when they were there, they had the experience of being taught skills for communicating in this particular way um, and having a supported kind of environment in which to practice that with each other and to make mistakes and, and to try again. And I think that's also fundamental. So our work is not just about helping people connect with each other, even when they have very different perspectives, for example. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just about helping people learn about social identity. It's really developing intentional dialogic practices that they can use when communicating about and across difference. Um, and I notice for me when I think about what it was like to participate with IDP for the first time, I think about listening in particular as being a thing that I would have told you I was a good listener <laughs> beforehand. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I actually learned, oh, active listening when defined some ways, it involves suspending judgment. So instead of having this running commentary as I'm listening to someone like, oh, that's a great point. Oh, that's not a good point. Or, oh, I would fact check that. Um, yeah. Or, eh. I'm done listening, you know, right? Like this evaluative um, monologue. Mm -hmm. If I quiet that and I try and suspend my own judgments and listen with curiosity, I hear things in an entirely different way. Um, and I think this is one of the skills that we try to help people practice. Um, and this is just a simple shift that it doesn't cost anything. It doesn't take me more time, you know, to listen in this way. But mm -hmm. I had to be taught that skill. And I was a postdoc at the time, right? Yeah. You know, so I was <laughs> right. like in my mid-20s. This is... Um, so I can see why if we're in a society where most people don't get the experience of having that dedicated instruction around how to communicate about controversial topics, I can see why we would expect fistfights. Right. <laughs> right. And it's funny to me, Rachel, because I, I feel the exact same way. And it's also something that I learned. And lucky for you, you learned it as a postdoc. I learned it much, much further in my career, mm -hmm. probably even as late as like a few years ago. Yeah. Right. And uh, I actually listened to solve a problem. Mm. And I, you know, just to sit back and kind of be in the moment and really, truly listen to the person made me realize that sometimes people are talking to me and they don't need me to solve a yeah. problem. They just need to share something. Um, I agree with you that I think this is such an important, important skill and not many people have an opportunity to actually spend time learning it. I have to say, too, that when you were describing about, you know, that suspending of judgment and really emptying your mind and concentrating, and I liked how you put that, that we have often, you didn't say it exactly like this, but essentially you said we haven't really been conditioned to learn through discussion. We've been conditioned to discuss to win, mm. right? But what that made me think of, though, is that, you know, high school debate class, right? Like, if you think about it, you know, the whole premise of debate is to win, mm -hmm. <laughs> to win an argument, to make a case. And so I just think this is interesting because it sort of flips all that, not to do it as a place for that, because mm -hmm. it is, but it just seems like the whole premise of IDP kind of takes that and flips it on its head a little bit, right? There's a very different goal involved in what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And we acknowledge that there is a time and a place for debate. Right. Sometimes right. it's high school debate clubs. Sometimes it's, you know, a different situation, but still very valid form yeah. of communicating. Yeah. And sometimes what we introduce to people is, we call it the three Ds, but it's basically just thinking about dialogue, debate, and discussion as different forms of communication that have different goals and different behaviors associated with them. Right. And so debate and discussion are forms of communication we get a lot of practice with in an academic environment like yes. Cornell. Yeah. I think even about, you know, when I was writing research papers in grad school, reviewer too is someone I was always debating with, right? I'm trying to prove to them that like their critique of my paper is is not valid or right. you know, like, um, yeah. Or we're having a discussion and it's really about problem solving. Tor, like you said, like I'm trying to solve a problem yeah. and that is really well suited to discussion, right? We got to make some decisions. We do have to hear a range of perspectives, but at the end of this, we got to resolve and we have to figure out how to move forward. Dialogue is different and it's a thing that we have fewer structured opportunities to practice. Outside of IDP. <laughs> uh, we try and give people those opportunities, but it's really about understanding. Sometimes things are messy. Sometimes they stay unresolved, right? We reach the end of a three-hour yeah. conversation and people feel maybe more unsettled um, in their thinking about a given issue or their relationship to a specific topic. And that can be really productive. And it can also require some support. So again, we, we want people to have these facilitated opportunities to practice that with each other so that they can work on those dialogue muscles that they don't necessarily get to practice as much as debate or discussion.
Yeah, that, I love the way you distinguish between discussion and dialogue mm-hmm. because I think those two words in particular get used a lot synonymously. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, you, you, it's very clear discussion. Discussion is about problem solving. Dialogue is about understanding. And maybe with no resolution. Other than you now maybe understand a little bit better. I appreciate what you just said, too, about, you know, sometimes that's messy. Um, and sometimes that can cause some discomfort. So that leads me to my next question, which is how have the students been receiving this program? You know, what has the feedback been that you've gotten? You know, it's been going on now. It's still going on, so that's a good sign. Yeah. yeah sure. But, you know, <laughs> what has the overall, you know, tenor been around the student experience? So we work with over 4,000 people a year. So there wow. is, understandably, a range of reactions. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, We also have some programs that, like I said, are required. So all incoming students are required to do this program with us when they are transitioning to Cornell. Um, We have other programs that people opt into. And so it is not the case that things are universally positive when it's a self-selecting group and universally negative when it's required. So overall, when I look at our survey results, because we'll talk about this in a little bit, but we do a lot of assessment of our work. In general, when we ask people, a majority of participants say that during the session, they feel more connected to other people at Cornell. Um, They describe the skills that we practice with them as being helpful for communicating more effectively across differences in social identity. Or sometimes we ask about differences in perspectives, so things like values, beliefs, or ideas. So those skills are seen as being really helpful. And we often ask people, you know, how might you apply the skills or concepts that were covered in this session or in this class. And people usually have an answer. You know, I don't always know if they go out and do that, but they say, oh, I'm going to, you know, use it in this relationship with my roommate, or I'm going to use it in this class that I'm part of. And, and so I think in general, there's positive reception, right? Even if it's uncomfortable, I think those learning moments that can happen when we reach the edge of what we already know can feel uncomfortable and so rewarding if Mm -hmm. it leads to greater understanding or if I was vulnerable, right? And that felt uncomfortable for me to share this story in front of the group, but then it was received so generously or, you know, someone reciprocated and shared something about themselves and now I feel this deeper connection. So even if there's that discomfort in the moment, it can be so valuable for learning. Well, and if nothing else, they've learned that they can live through being uncomfortable. You know, they can can do it and live. You know, what you just said, I just want to ask one other question about them talking about how they might use that in other contexts of life. You know, college can also be a challenging time when it comes to maintaining some sort of relationship with your family, right? Because all kinds of things are being called into question. (laughs) You know, you're growing, you're spreading your wings, that sort of thing. Have students ever talked about that, that going through this process has maybe allowed them to have better conversations or relations with their families? The answer is yes. Um, And more just I'm thinking about like, what is like a particular moment to settle upon? And the ones that stick with me aren't the ones where it's like, oh, it's like we were able to wrap up all of our differences in a yeah. nice little bow. By using the skills that IDP teaches about inclusive communication, uh-huh. I was able to resolve all these kinds of differences and conflicts with family members. That's actually not what I usually hear. What I usually hear is that it's using these skills that allowed family members who are in re- who are holding very 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 different positions for a variety of reasons to at least be able to stay in conversation with one another and that like oh it's like that conversation with my family was really really uncomfortable and somehow by the end of it like we were still talking and then there's a kind of astonishment in some ways that like we had this conversation and we had such big disagreement and some of that disagreement hurt and we were still willing to stay in relationship and conversation with one another by the end of it. Like, it was just like, oh, this isn't something that I thought was possible. And sometimes I think there are situations where it's like dialogue is not the answer. I think we don't want to say it's like you should be dialoguing with everyone at all times. Right. Um, and so there have been situations I've heard where it was just like I tried and I felt like I couldn't do it. Yeah. So I had to stop. Um And I think that's okay, too, that sometimes part of dialogue work is recognizing where am I and what is going on with me and where are the spaces where I can give? Because I think we want to recognize dialogue work asks you to give quite a bit. Um, I think 
it's not just about like really trying to understand someone else. Mm -hmm. It's about I want to give enough for other people to understand me. It requires a kind of um, honesty on my part that I'm not always used to giving in academic spaces all the time, where it's just like I have to talk about what I think, how I'm feeling. I don't get to hide behind, well, a bunch of people have said this. It's like, what do I think? Yeah. And I think in certain situations that can be hard. And then recognizing when am I in a position to be able to do that and when I am not. And it's such a privilege to hear students coming back and be able to talk about all of this, being like, here are the moments where I felt like I was at my limit. Here are the, my moments where I was a, thought I was able to do this effectively. I was going to ask about that, actually. So I, I will share that we learned some of the skills that you teach in, in the IDB program as, as a staff member because it was presented to our department. And uh, I still use it regularly with my own children, right? This is It's, it's given me a, a better way to communicate with them versus that I am a parent, I'm going to tell you what to do, and you're just going to do it. We actually can have a meaningful dialogue. Um, I think it's led to a better relationship for me now that I have teenagers, right? It's, it's a much better conversation. Um, so I was going to ask about that in terms of some of the assessment piece that we talked about. Have you done a post-graduation assessment? So once these students who have gone through the IDP program, whether as undergrads or even as grad students, once they've left Cornell or it's been, you know, five years, seven, eight years down the line, have you done a follow-up assessment to see do they still use it? Is it still valuable for them? And does it still lead to these meaningful dialogues within their work settings or other situations? I think a formal assessment of that is in the works. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> although we did just have this summer a conference to kind of mark our 10-year anniversary, mm -hmm. and we had a number of alumni come back for that. We're in close contact with a lot of people who've been part of our program. Mm -hmm. I think especially facilitators. So I mentioned that we have undergraduate students facilitating classes for yeah. other undergraduate students. Those facilitators get a lot of time with us, for better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so many of them, I think in particular, with their additional time, some of them facilitate the course more than once. And so it's part of their experience at Cornell for multiple semesters. So I think those former facilitators in particular are people who we hear talk about what this means for them in their work. We have a number of former facilitators who are in medical school right now. And when I hear them talk about the things that they notice or the ways that they're paying attention to social identity and how it shows up in their interactions with fellow students or instructors or patients or the things that they advocate for, um, it's really moving <laughs> um, yeah. because, you know, those are spaces I'm not in. I'm never going to be that kind of doctor. Thank goodness you don't want me <laughs> as your doctor. Um, and so to know that they've taken this this learning with them, it's just really well, profound. Well, as Stephen said earlier, systems, inequities. If ever there's a system where there's some inequities, it's the healthcare system, right? <laughs> right? And so the fact that these students are in medical school and, and being able to recognize that when they might not necessarily be taught that yeah. in medical school, right, but they're able to make that connection, I think is pretty amazing. So, so let's back up a minute to, you know, again, we talked about when I asked about how do you gauge, you know, the student experience. Talk more about how you do assess that. You know, that word, first of all, assessment. You know, it, I'm not going to lie. I hear that word and sometimes I just want to, like, curl up and go to sleep. Right? <laughs> so, you know, it's like, oh, boy, here we go, assessment. So please, please educate me, <laughs> enlighten me, right? Like, how do you utilize that? How has it helped? Because yeah. I'm guessing that had, that had a role in why this program is 10 years old, mm. right? And I've seen my, for myself online these glowing tributes from students. And so obviously you're doing something right, and that has to have something to do with how you're assessing it. So tell us more about that. I think Stephen and I have slightly different attitudes and experiences related to assessment. So you'll get some different perspectives. Okay. Uh -huh. Love it. <laughs> um, full transparency assessment is something I really enjoy, and it's a big part, <laughs> and, and it's a big part of my job. So okay. um, I see assessment as sort of an ongoing process geared towards understanding. And fundamental to this is intellectual humility, my ability to acknowledge the things that I don't know and the things that I can't know by myself. So um, I need other people's perspectives if I'm going to have a more comprehensive 
understanding of what's going on in our program, especially with things like inclusion, right? I can't know if someone feels included. I can't look at them and say, oh, you definitely feel included. Right, yeah. right. 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 I, I have to ask if I want to know that. And right. so I think it's recognizing that I can't know it unless someone tells me. And the way we do assessment in IDP, we really try to take it seriously as an invitation to not only get participants' perspectives, but also act on them in a meaningful way, right? It's sort of that co-learning idea I mentioned earlier where we recognize that there are things we can learn from our participants. And assessment presents a, a nice opportunity to capture some of that. So what does this look like? Measurement and observation. So we do surveys where participants, whether they're students, staff, or faculty who are part of our programming, are answering some questions, either closed-ended questions or, or open-ended questions telling us about their experience. We also ask facilitators, or when we're facilitating, right, I know that we're kind of reading the room, right? I see that as a form of assessment. Are yeah. people engaged? Are people confused? Can I tell just by the looks on people's faces, right? Are they getting this? Is this making sense, or do I need to reframe um, and also how assessment really relies on having clearly articulated goals and desired outcomes. So how do I know that this is a success? I need to think about, right? What do I hope that people walk away with in terms of skills or knowledge? And so we use surveys, we use focus groups, interviews, again, facilitator observations, and all of these things help us have a more comprehensive understanding of what's working well and what we need to change. Um, I'll let Stephen chime in here. There's more I could say, but yeah. Um, so I think my primary role in IDP's assessment process is to take all these like wonderful things that Rachel has um, found and compiled, and then to communicate with partners because we work with partners in some of our programming to help them think about like what does this actually mean, and what do we even do with this data, and I think. One thing that I really admired about like Rachel's um, disposition towards assessment work is um, it's the first time where it's like I really thought about assessment as a way of listening and beginning a conversation. Um, and this contributes to, I think, Aaron, what you're saying. It's like, oh, it's time to take a nap now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's about like, oh, it's like I take something from somebody else about their experience and then it's like almost extractive and then I use it to make some kind of decision and they never sort of hear about it again. And with the return back to the partner after we do the survey is really important for us because it's we have gathered information and perspective and really important data from the partner that we were working with. And we want to go back to them and say, hey, here are some of the things that we found. I think it's important for you to know it as well. And then what do you think of what we found? Because hearkening back to intellectual humility, the partner probably has context that we don't that could also help us make better sense of what we're seeing in the assessment. And so, yeah, it's lovely to be able to think of this as part of an ongoing conversation as opposed to just like, okay, we have results, here you go, goodbye. Yeah. Um, and when we see it as a conversation and when our partners see it as a conversation as well, it is really lovely because we get to talk about what are actually some of the things that are working and what are not. Um, where we sort of let go of the pretense of we must always all be successful and everything must always be a success. And then we are going to bracket any anomalies and then we're just going to not think about them. It's like we get to actually talk about what is effective about our interventions here, what are not, what is preventing people from participating fully or like achieving the kinds of learning outcomes that we want. What is blocking people from being able to feel like they can bring their whole selves either to the unit or to the conversations or whatever? And the assessment, I think, is a really, really valuable source of information for that because not only does it allow us to open the conversation to talk about, I guess, like challenging issues, it also helps ground us. It's not just about my vibes. I think my vibe, the vibes I'm feeling are important. Um, I also don't know if I'm using that term correctly because I've been informed multiple times by my students that I'm millennial and I don't understand what I mean. <laughs> um, so apologies to Gen Z listeners if I got that wrong. Um, but then it's not just about like, ooh, it's like my gut instincts. Um, there, it, we're also working with the perspectives of everybody who participated in the assessment. Mm -hmm. And then when we're making decisions, we are keeping all of that in mind. It's not just about like me, if I'm the IDP representative and then the leadership of the other unit. It's not just us that gets to have a say, I guess, in like how we move forward. It is including um, the perspectives and experiences of as many people as we can through the assessment. 
And that's the core of inclusion work, right? And so there's so much that both of you just said that I almost want to like pick apart little things, right? You know, one of the things that I kind of hone in on and I actually made a note here on the side is this. I love the idea that you talk about assessment not in a singular format. It's not like just a test or a survey, but it's focus groups, it's conversations, it's real-time feedback. It's all of these things that actually can give you the information about whether or not these programs are successful or not. And so I want to just really hone in on that idea that assessments can come in so many different forms and not just the traditional what we're used to, which is like, here's a survey at the end of the program. Tell us how you feel. Because to be honest, if you're not assessing as you go, like Rachel, you mentioned that as the facilitator, if you see that people aren't engaged, yeah. that's real-time assessment that, that you are performing right there because that gives you an opportunity to actually change the format that you're presenting in because you're realizing that something is not clicking here or something is not working. So I, I love that. And I wanted to say thank you for sharing that with our audience. I'm wondering, and I do have a vague memory of when IDP started, and as you said, Rachel, it doesn't look the same now as it looked when it started. Is that the result of some of the assessment, right? Like, can you give an example, maybe, of something that did shift in the program because of whatever you all learned through your assessment? Absolutely, yes. Um, And the example that I think is clearest is uh, when we started doing this orientation program for all incoming students, Uh That was a big shift for us. It was required, and our other programming hadn't been required. The scale of it, entirely different, right? right? Having thousands of incoming students versus the 100, 200 students who were in our undergraduate class. Um, the timing, right? It's students at this very critical transition. Yeah. Um, and they're all kind of approaching that from different angles, but they're all experiencing this big upheaval in shifting to life as a Cornell student. Right. Um, So it was very different from a lot of the things we had done. So we did our very best in designing what would be a meaningful three-hour program for students to do during orientation. What's doable on our end, right, in terms of materials, staff, things like that. But what what, what do we want students to know? So we used our best guesses based on our experience in the classroom. Totally different context. So they actually needed some different things. (laughs) And we learned that through the assessment. So all participating students were given the opportunity to complete a survey anonymously. And we also collected data from our peer facilitators who were in the room. So we asked them slightly different questions, right? Students, we asked sort of, what are you taking away? When did you feel most connected? Facilitators, we asked, when did students seem most engaged? When did they seem most bored? Things like that. It was so clear after that first year that students had been participating in groups of about 20. So we thought, okay, this is not a huge group, right? This is like a size of a nice small class. Mm -hmm. And they had a few opportunities during the three hours to connect with one or two other students in like a pair share small group activity. It was abundantly clear that those small group activities when they were in pairs or trios were the parts they enjoyed the most, the parts they were most engaged, the parts where it really seemed like they were able to practice the skills, connect with other people. So we heard that both from undergraduate students who had participated and our our facilitators. So we overhauled the entire thing. (laughs) And so we said, there are going to be things I'm going to need to change. And that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. That doesn't mean, you know, this was horrible or not worth doing. It means I can still do it better. Yeah. So we shifted the entire sort of session plan to build in a lot more opportunities for those small group pair interactions. We've still made changes since, but I think it was an example of not being too precious about, you know, an unwillingness to change this program that, you know, we included the things that we thought were really important based on what we'd seen in the classroom. And so being willing to let go or shift some of those to meet the needs of this other population and what they were telling us. um, Yeah, it was really fun to be part of (laughs) to, to say, oh, here's what they like. How can we build in more of that? Because it's clear that's where a lot of the learning is happening. Well, what I like, too, is that you didn't come away from it with a, oh, well, you know, that didn't work, so that means it wasn't good. What we did, right? No, you recognize, okay, there's a way here to evolve it and build on it. Mm -hmm. Too many times, I feel like, with critical efforts like this that have to do with working towards inclusion, Mm -hmm. and we're too quick to say, well, that didn't work, so throw it out altogether and start from scratch, right? Instead of recognizing what you both just said, which is it's not going to be perfect the first time. So let's just do it and then do a thoughtful assessment to figure out how to make it better. 
Yeah. It's also probably not going to be perfect the fifth time. I mean, yeah. like we, 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 we evaluate. Um, so our undergraduate course that's been going since 2012, we evaluate that every semester mm-hmm. um, through student, you know, assignments, right? We look at those as sources of data. We have them do pre and post surveys. So I think it's really built into the way we approach our work is always this curiosity about what's working well, what can be different, because also the context is changing, right? Yeah. Um, the students we have at Cornell right now, had a pandemic in some of their college or high school experience, and and that's impacted what they need. And so things like that, right, needing to to evolve, even if our program could be static, the environment in which we're doing this program is not static. So we might as well feel curious about how we can adjust to that. And I think that curiosity piece is really important because um, before coming to IDP, I think when I think about assessment, it really was, Erin, um, as you were saying it, was this a good program or a bad program? It what? really was about like, I the, the only thing that I'm thinking about when I'm looking at any kind of assessment is about evaluation. Mm-hmm. And I think, Rachel, what you're pointing to curiosity, um, it's more about like asking this question of like, what can, what are we learning? And so it's approaching it with the mindset of, an openness to what are these results revealing to me? What questions does it actually open up? The goal isn't necessarily to pass some kind of like judgment on the program. There's a space where I get to be open before I maybe have to be part of a decision-making process where it's like I get to be curious. I get to be like, oh, what's going on here? And it's something that I have been able to take to some of the work that I do outside of my unit here, um, where it's just like, it's not just about doing the survey. It's about like, what are we curious about? And what information can we not actually provide that we need to hear from others? And then how do we go about having the conversation with people in a way where it's like they feel empowered to tell us what they really think and feel? I think that the fact that you can demonstrate that you're actually using what you're learning to evolve, I'm not even going to say make changes, but just to evolve the program, I would have to imagine that that is something that causes some of these students who maybe went through the program to then say they want to be facilitators because they're actually seeing that what they shared is being put into practice and approaching it from a collaborative way like that, I would have to imagine it is one reason why it's been successful. Is a way for um, staff and faculty and, you know, people who don't go through the class, whether it be our listeners out there all over the world or just other staff and faculty, to learn more about the skills of IDP. So I think the first place for those of you out there who want to learn more about the Intergroup Dialogue Project to go would be our website. That's idp.cornell.edu. And there's information on our assessment. But then I do want to highlight that there is a tab specifically for resources. And then for members of the Cornell community, there's guides and then guides to be able to learn some of our like our flagship communication mm. skills, um, the ones that we um, find are most useful, I think, in a variety of different settings. There's some reading and then some like usually a lot of them have tips and then resources, other resources that you can turn to to learn about them. So that's one place I would look. For listeners out there who also want to hear dialogue in action, um, there's a really um, wonderful opportunity, and I'm going to set up Rachel to talk about <laughs> um, her podcast. Well, we have our own podcast. Um, okay. we've, take, we've taken a little hiatus, but we're coming back soon. It's called I Statements, um, and it is also available through our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, but like Stephen said, it's dialogue and action. We try and have candid conversations where people are reflecting on their own experiences with social identity in a way that, again, is geared towards understanding. And so we talk about a wide range of topics, things like humility, imagination, um, stuff like that. Yeah, and I feel like we've been playing up our undergraduate facilitators a lot. So that's where you can also hear some of them be able to talk. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. They always bring their full selves. Yeah. And it's um, always a joy to be in conversation with their them. Their vibes are in full effect. There you go. <laughs> Using it correctly. Using it I don't correctly. Know. I don't know. We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> well, that is very helpful. You know, I feel like we would be remiss if we don't make, as we wrap up our conversation, what is jumping out to me as sort of an obvious connection, <laughs> which is, uh, as our listeners know, because Toro and I have referenced this in some of our episodes, that Cornell this year has a whole theme around freedom of expression. 
But, you know, to hear you all talk about IDP now celebrating 10 years, clearly you were ahead of our time, right? I mean, IDP, I feel like everything about it is about supporting freedom of expression and really um, helping people to figure out how that can look in a respectful way, you know, how to both dialogue but also listen. Yeah, freedom of expression isn't just about what we say, right? It's it's how we hear and how we interpret things. And and on our freedom of expression website, IDP's right there. It's listed as a resource. And so, please, I have to hear your thoughts on that. You know, what are your thoughts around where IDP fits in in terms of really supporting freedom of expression? So, Aaron, the point that you made about freedom of expression and then also the relationship with listening is one that I've been thinking about a lot. And oftentimes, it's like when I hear people talk about freedom of expression, it's about being able to speak. And then when I hear people talking about listening, it's always about like, I get to choose what I hear and what I don't hear. And for me, it's like I'm challenging myself to think about what happens if it's like the freedom to express and the freedom to listen that I think about them together. And part of this, um, I think, gets back to one of the core functions of dialogue, which is I want to be able to understand others, but I also want them to understand me. I also have a responsibility to tell them what I am thinking and feeling to the extent that I feel that I can. And so I'm trying to push myself really to think about it. It's like, it's not just about like whoever is speaking, it's also about who's listening. And then when I think about like taking into account both the speaker and the listener in a conversation, um, what do I want freedom for both to look like? And what that often means is it's not like 100% I'm thinking about the speaker or the listener, it's somewhere in between. And that means that it's going to be some kind of negotiation. And I want to push myself to think about what does that look like when we think about speaking and listening and when we're really trying to understand each other. Well, I think everything that you all talked about today really helps support this notion of dialoguing to understand, not dialoguing to convince or to agree, right, or anything like that. It really is just to understand. And I feel like a lot of what you described today is an equalizer and that nobody's expected to represent or to be considered a representative for an entire group, whether marginalized or privileged. Either way, right? you're supposed to be just examining your own relationships. You both said that at the start. Admittedly, I wasn't sure I fully got it when you first said it, but now after this whole conversation, I find myself coming back to that. It's really about examining what your relationship is with all of your identities, of which you're bound to have multiple (laughs) different ones and different, as you said, relationships. Yeah, I love that you said it's an equalizer because I think this is another thing we hear pretty often from people who, like you said, have maybe more privileged social identities or are in spaces where they experience privilege, um, is like, oh, my responsibility here is to listen. Like, I need to listen to people who have marginalized experiences. That's how I'm going to contribute. And I think what we really ask people to do is all to show up and do that work you described of examining their own experience, regardless, right, of what your experience is with a given identity. I like that. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much. The time has just flown by. Really, thank you. And and I hope our listeners will go check out the IDP website and learn more. And I I know I'm going to, uh, definitely. So thank you very much. Thank Thank you. you so much. Aaron, didn't that just fly by? Oh, my goodness. What a fantastic conversation we just had with Rachel and Stephen. It really was because, you know, like I said, I, I remember when IDP started, but I never necessarily had a front row seat to really understanding what it was all about. Um, so to hear the history and how it's evolved, not only was interesting, but it really speaks to the power of what they were talking about, about seeking, you know, the feedback yeah. from the participant, from everybody involved, and using that to really help continuously evolve it. Because I tell you, that the feedback continues to be amazing among students, no matter what generation, no matter what year. And so that, to me, just really speaks to how much effort has been put into really continuously enhancing the program. Well, and that concept can really be applied to almost anything, right? Any project that we work on, yes. any other types of trainings that we have, especially in the the DEI spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, what I liked about their assessment conversation was the idea that 
there are so many different types of assessments that are happening, right? And so one of them is the real-time assessment. As you are presenting, if you Mm -hmm. see that people aren't engaged, even a conversation or a dialogue, which we obviously mentioned multiple times, um, if you're realizing that they're not really engaged or they're not quite understanding what you're doing, Mm -hmm. that's a real-time assessment that you can change, right? Right, right. And you can change your tactic. You can present the information Mm -hmm. in a different way Mm -hmm. uh, to lead to that much deeper conversation. I like that you're saying about taking it and applying it to other settings because, yes, what we talked about was this this course that mostly students are engaging with. But the lessons that Rachel and Stephen spoke about can be, you know, any supervisor could apply those lessons to how they are managing the work unit, right? Any leader can take the lessons and realize, okay, we have this project or this goal that we have to implement in our workspace. You know, how can I get the team on board? How can I be continuously assessing our effectiveness at meeting these outcomes? Everything they talked about could be applied to the work setting. In yeah. very clear ways. And I mean, the other thing that we talk about, and you and I have talked about this multiple times, is this idea of looking at the difference between dialogue, discussion, and mm-hmm. debate, right? We talked about debate class in high school yeah. throughout, you know, through our conversation. Uh, and I don't think we've ever distinguished be- the difference between a discussion and a dialogue. No. And I'm glad that we got a chance to do that today. I am too, because I, I totally have used those words interchangeably. Correct. You know, and I never really thought about that, that what she was saying about how discussion is much more about trying to, you know, resolve something, come to consensus, come right. to a solution, right? Whatever, which is obviously something we do at work a lot. Right. We discuss things and we try to figure it out and move on. But dialogue has a very different goal in mind, you know, um, and you have to be able to sit with that right. and realize that you might not agree, you might not um, convince somebody, <laughs> you know, but that's not the goal. The that's goal is the goal. to improve the relationship and your ability to connect right. with somebody else. And that really stuck with me because I, I think it's going to make me rethink how I approach some conversations, um, whether at work, at home, wherever. It's a, a different approach. Yeah, the idea that dialogue is communicating with intentionality, mm-hmm. right? And it's 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 about not ignoring the difference, but mm-hmm. really to kind of focus on them and, and have that dialogue through those differences, mm-hmm. right? As they mentioned, both of them mentioned in different ways, you don't have to come to that consensus at yeah. the end. You don't have to agree. But that's actually a very hard space for a lot of people to leave a conversation without an end agreement. It is. And I think in this day and age, what is also a lot harder for a lot of us is to be okay with discomfort right. that comes when you don't agree. Right. Um, and to be okay with, uh, you know, challenging or being challenged. And it is a lot easier to just walk away. It is a lot easier to just turn off that person that you don't want to hear anymore, you know, and to only seek out the like-minded, yeah. <laughs> so to speak, right? But what we compromise in that is that we don't know how to get to the other side when we're in a situation where we don't have a choice. We have to work with this person or we have to live with them and we have to engage with them, right? So no, you can't just turn them off. You have to figure out how you are going to well, again, come to an understanding, understand right. one another, and realize you can't do it, that you can't get through it, and you will end up being better for it. Yeah, and I think that's great advice and a great piece to leave this conversation because that listening is such an important part of the dialogue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, great conversation. Or should I say great dialogue? Great dialogue indeed. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Department of Inclusion and Belonging in collaboration with the Cornell Broadcast Studio. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and submit a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners to find us and the show. For the latest updates on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging at Cornell, be sure to visit diversity.cornell.edu. My name is Erin Sumber-Chase. And my name is Toral Patel. We would also like to thank our co-producer and sound engineer, Bert Odom-Reed, as always, for making us sound amazing each and every episode. Thanks, Thanks Bert. Bert.